Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In today's show, we feature part one of our conversation with Yaling Jiang, founder of Following the Yuan, a popular newsletter focused on Chinese consumers. Before launching her own newsletter, Yaling wrote for outlets such as SCMP, Glossy, Vogue Business, and WWD. In the first half of our conversation with Yaling, we learn the history of Following the Yuan and what drove her to start producing it, as well as an overview of the newsletter-based journalism field in general and the parallel it has with WeChat official accounts. We also ask Yelling to touch on the Asian baby girl trend before diving headlong into the Barbie movie phenomenon, its reception amongst audiences in China, and dovetailing that into a deeper discussion of what toys children in China grew up with. Enjoy. If you were in China maybe like 10 something years ago, you may remember there was a huge house of Barbie in the city center of Shanghai. That was an expensive experiment by Mattel because they thought that, oh, we are so popular here. We can be popular in China. Let's just throw a 30 million to this six story building that can feel that can bring so much joy to the Chinese girls. The thing is that the Chinese girls don't want Barbie in their world. They don't need Barbie. Also, like Barbie doesn't, they don't identify with Barbie. Also, Mattel at that time tried to make, tried to come up with this Chinese Barbie called Ling, who's who's in a pink chi pao. But I think the reception at the time, as I read from domestic media, is that they don't think it really doesn't identify with really like with all the Chinese girls. It's still the American perception of Chinese skills. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Yaling, welcome to the show. Thank you, Todd. Thanks for having me. So if you don't mind, please give us a deeper introduction into yourself, some of your background, upbringing, education, and work experience that has led to what you do today. I'm a China native. Uh, I'm a millennial born and bred in Suzhou, which is uh, part of Jiangsu province, very close to Shanghai. I was educated in the UK and US, but in between those years, I was also working in Shanghai as a translator and freelance writer. So my previous background was really a connector between the English speaking world and China market. And I don't see the work I do any anything different. I think I'm still very much a connector between the China consumer markets and the English speaking audience. And I really strive to bring them the day-to-day nuances and underground colors for people who may have um, investment interest or just any interest in China. Okay. So I think we're both producing content and information and education along the same vein 
to a similar audience um, and for the same reasons. We both want to see each side understand each better and be better informed and better Mm -hmm. educated in order to promote better business and sometimes just a better life. Yeah. So tell us the story behind your newsletter following the Yuan and the inspiration behind it. As you know... Todd, um, I think with the startup world, a lot of founders start their own business or product with frustration. And I think I have a similar story because I've been very frustrated with how consumers were reported in the English journalism world. Um, I think actually one of the triggers um, for me to start my own thing is that I didn't get a job. I wanted. There was a very relevant job with the exact title I want to report on Chinese consumers. I didn't get a job. I was very sad. And also over the years, when I was striving to work for bigger and bigger newspapers and platforms, I realized that the, the newsrooms don't always prioritize people stories. They don't prioritize the consumer stories in, in the business world. Instead, they go for the click, I want to say clickbait, but it's a bit like that because they, they do realize that the political charge news often get bigger hits. For example, like how some political moves by Biden would affect certain Chinese companies or how the AI war, trade war, uh, rolls out between China and US or China and the rest of the world. Those stories these days would get bigger hits than a general trend story. Actually, some of the editors wouldn't even see trend stories as real news. So that really frustrated me because I also had some years working at, um, uh, some years of experience working at a design consultancy. And I know that these trends are actually what top management would love to read because they need to make forward-looking business decisions based on the consumers. They are actually very user-driven. They are very consumer-driven. So I was just thinking when I'm at uh, newsrooms that you're you're actually not feeding the the trends, the market insights that these business leaders uh, need. But I want to do something on my own here to tell them what's really happening in China. That's actually beyond the top headlines of large news publications. Okay, so what does Following the Yuan cover? Tell us a little bit more about the topics Mm. and insights from your newsletter. I think the regular schedule for me every week now is to do a news roundup on Tuesday and also um, a deeper analysis on Thursday. So for news roundup, I normally will just get like three top trend stories I've read from Chinese publications and give them uh, like where these trends come from, uh, where they may want to go. Because I know that I think sometimes it's really hard to read beyond the the surface. Um, For example, you may have seen some fashion reporting saying that a lot of Chinese Gen Z girls like to dress as ABG girls because they just kind of copy the statics from the US, but they don't, don't really understand the cultural context behind it. Um, so what I'm bringing to the table is the cultural context, why they, the trends may come to be where they are. Sometimes it's culture, sometimes it's societal movement, sometimes it's policy. And I, I love to give the audience the whole package. And with the deeper dives, 
I usually, sometimes I do original reporting too. I talk to consumers on how the market is shifting, for example, whether the nightlife is really bouncing back. Sometimes that answers uh, the questions that maybe publications have never answered before. For, such as, um, like, what does the cancel culture mean in China? Because there is a lot of differences and uh, the, the nuances that some media publication didn't really tap into. So I try to answer those questions. I try to be explanatory. I wouldn't say what I'm doing is 100% journalism. I think a lot of it is commentary. A lot of it is analysis. But all in all, I want to present them with like a whole rounded view with a lot of color in a way that they can understand. Right. And I like that because so often we get the headlines and they're typically Mm -hmm. written in a clickbaity form and they're announcing what has happened and Mm -hmm. they might give some, some light information about the who and the where to go along with it. But we lack a lot of context. And mm-hmm. I think that's, it's unfortunate. I know that it's, it takes work to dig out the context and present it. It takes work for the audience to read and understand it. But that's where the importance actually lies. Um, you can be told the answer to a question, but for anybody who's taken some statistics in, in university, and been asked a question, and then they, they it says that only one mark out of 10 is given for the right answer, nine are in how you got there. It underscores the importance of really how important it is to actually understand how something came to be. So I appreciate that you do that. I wanted to ask, because you provide uh, newsletter-based journalism, can you tell us a little bit mm-hmm. about the broader trend an industry of doing newsletter-based journalism. What are your thoughts on it? What do you like and appreciate about doing that? And then maybe what's difficult or more face more headwinds when you're doing newsletter-based journalism? Actually, let me go back to the beginning where I first interacted with newsletter journalism. I, I think back in 2018, I was still in New York City and my my best friend at the time started working for Morning Brews and now I mean the business business newsletter that everyone knows uh, and likes I so that was actually my first uh, interaction with someone who actually was actually in the business and now that it's become so much more mainstream and I think for the Morning Brew people they still wouldn't say that they're doing journalism they are basically doing digestible business content um, that sometimes I think that just makes the headlines or makes the traditional forms of journalism easier to read, easier to digest and entertaining even. So I think for the last five years, I've really learned a lot from them. And as the trend goes more mainstream, I've now also joined the wave uh, around one or two years ago. I think there's still a very bright future in it. Um, as, as we can see, like the news veterans like Ben Smith also started Semaphore, which is also a newsletter base. I think people see the newsletter a very key 
way to stay connected with the audience, a bit like how China marketers see uh, WeChat official accounts, a key form of communication channel with their audience. And uh, for me, as someone who um, both lived in China and the US, I think actually newsletters are a lot like WeChat official accounts. You are basically in the in the person's echo chamber. You are in their like inner circle of information channel and you basically have like one-to-one uh, yeah, you have a one-to-one communication channel with them. So if that person wants to re- respond to you, either on WeChat or newsletter, they can do that and they can feel the level of personal connection with you, which is not, which is definitely not how traditional journalism or traditional newspaper or websites are set up. The ABG. Can you explain what an ABG is? Right. Asia Baby Girl. Asian Baby Girl. Uh, can you explain what that is? I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm no expert in U.S. culture, but I know that it has carried certain perceptions in the U.S. And uh, I think the reason, I think, I think the aesthetics was translated to Chinese social media probably and was picked up by um, Chinese girls, but what they don't get and they probably don't really care is how the ABG girls are perceived and uh, they are probably uh, locked down among the Asian community and uh, also maybe some people may see it as a phase in U.S. I don't know, correct me here because I'm I re- I really no U.S. culture expert. Um, but I think I think going back to what we talked about before, it's really important to explain the context and where the trends come from so that the audience can actually learn a thing or two about how to read trend later. We don't just want to present them like whatever it is on the surface. It would be better if they can be more than the expert themselves later on or like in a Chinese land, we can teach them how to fish instead of like hand-holding them every step of the way. So yeah, sorry, yeah. I can't explain. You ABG. grabbed it. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> That's okay. But everybody now knows that ABG stands for Asia Baby Girl. And you mm-hmm. know what? Everybody has access to Google so they can go look it up if they're interested. You used a very famous quip, something that I used to use a lot when I was working with startups. And I would say, we're not going to give you the fish. We're not going to teach you how to fish. Uh, I'm here to teach you how to build a fishing company. So Kudos to you for dropping that in. Let's talk about the Barbie film. Tell us about how the Barbie film has been. I haven't. I haven't. It's really hard not to know. I mean, it's been one of the biggest box office weeks with what is it? Hmm. Oppenheimer and Barbie. Um, Am I getting that right? Oppenheimer? Oppenheim? Oppenheimer. And and it's been it's been dominating the airwaves, right? It's it's eating Mm. all the oxygen in the room uh, on social media a lot. It's been a lot of fun for a lot of people getting dressed up and doing a lot of things. It's been somewhat fascinating to watch what's going on from from the sidelines. I always felt that that Barbie wasn't exactly well perceived, especially in the realm of body image and and these kinds of things. It was really rather looked down upon in a lot of ways and then all of a sudden this movie comes out and it's unbelievable. I think Margot Robbie is she the uh, the lead actress in that movie? Yeah, mm-hmm. so I think that has mm-hmm. a lot to do with it. But again, here we go. It's huge. It's been everywhere. 
And I'd like to know from you, how has it been received at the Chinese box office? And what are Chinese moviegoers saying about it over there? I actually wrote about it for my newsletter yesterday. I looked at the dashboard on Maoyan, which is Alibaba-owned uh, film intelligence platform. And they are ranked the fourth in the national box office and think they're, the, the actual number is something close to... Um, sorry, I'm going to spell numbers. To EE. EE, that's like 100 million. That's 100 million yuan. Okay. Yeah. That's it's close wow. to that. Um, so it's ranked the fours and top three are all domestic titles. The first two are based on traditional fantasies, and the third one is based on the news story. So I looked into the scheduling rate, which means which usually means that I think of a hundred movies screened in cinema in China. How many slots does this one take? So for Barbie, it's around 10%. But for the top grossing movie um, in China as of yesterday, it's 22%. So I think people should okay. look at scheduling rates when, when they look at a certain um, the box office of a certain film title. And what are the moviegoers who have seen the movie? What are they saying about it? What do they think? Okay, let me tell you what I think first. I went to cinema last weekend in my in my only pink dress. Uh, I think it was great. I think it was great branded content. I think really, I think hopefully it will change the perception of Mattel to everyone who went there and to see it. I think it's really funny that, uh, I mean, how the screenwriters and how the directors think they can actually joke about Mattel themselves. Um, there was one thing which I think was great that in, there was like this Barbie world and the real world, the real world is basically setting in LA. And in the Barbie world, every woman or every Barbie thinks they've already changed the world because in their world, um, like women can be president, they can be supreme judge, they can be lawyers. And uh, it's, a, it's a place ruled by women. So in their mind, they've already changed the world to a better place, which is funny, I think, which is kind of like, it's a clever joke made of, like based on the inclusivity, diversity, ESG movement, uh, DEI, DEI efforts made by these companies. But they know that once they step into the real world, it's still very patriarchal, as we see in the film. So I think it's very cleverly done. I really enjoyed it. Um, and there's a female friends I've had, I think enjoyed it too. Um, based on some comments I see on social media, um, there were some feminists who are saying that Barbie is not feminist enough, but they are understanding because they kind of have to strike a balance between the real feminism and the business achievement. And for a mass audience to accept something like Barbie, you, you can't go too far. Um, so yeah, I think Chinese women are loving it and they are pushing their boyfriends and uh, um, husbands to see it, kind of just to give them a test to see how they would respond. I don't know. I, I, I don't think I've seen many men in the same movie theater. I think there were a lot of gay guys, there were a lot of girlfriends going there in groups. 
I don't think I've I've seen many guys. I do hope like more guys will go see it though. It's very interesting because to me, Barbie and Ken are about as American as you know backyard barbecues and baseball. It's it's always been that way. It's used and it's referenced. Uh, you know, she looks like a Barbie or something like this or what have you. Um, and it's almost as if for the last 40 years, the rest of the world has looked upon uh, a blonde haired girl from L.A. as a Barbie or referenced as a Barbie. It's used in this way. And it almost always refers to an American. So how does Barbie, the movie or the aura fit into Chinese culture or Chinese environment? How does it play in China? Versus how it plays in the U.S. because it's adopted, it's there. The kids, mostly girls, grew up playing with Barbie, and it's got all this symbolism and, and this this uh, emotional attachment for so many people in North America. Does it have that? What's it represent? How does it fit into Chinese culture, if at all? I don't think it fits at all. Before the movie, hmm. after the movie, who knows? Maybe the company can do something else. If you were, if you were in China, maybe like ten something years ago, you may remember there was a huge house of Barbie um, in the city center of Shanghai. That was an expensive experiment by Mattel because they thought that oh, we are so popular here, we can be popular in China. Let's just throw like thirty million to this six-story building that can feel like that can bring so much joy to the Chinese girls. The thing is that the Chinese girls don't want Barbie in their world. They don't need Barbie. Also like Barbie doesn't they don't identify with Barbie. Also Mattel at the time tried to make try to come up with this Chinese Barbie called Ling who's who's in a pink chi pao. Um, but I think the reception of time as I read from um, the mass media is that they don't think it, it really um, I mean, it doesn't identify with really like with a lot of Chinese girls. It's still the American perception of Chinese girls. So I think back at the time, if they did more consumer um, interviews, they if they really talk to the consumers, they will know that it's not a great idea. But in 2023, I think a pop-up can actually be a brilliant idea. But the thing is, maybe they've lost interest in China already. Um, what I've seen this year, though, I think since last year and maybe this year, that there, there has been a lot of Barbie collaborations with Chinese brands. For example, there was a really cool uh, collaboration with Chinese pastry brand, Hollyland, Holly Lai. They just make kind of... Yeah, like all over the moon pastries with excessive packaging. For example, I give friend this cake in a high glass. Um, and uh, there's also packaging that makes it look like a handbag so she can carry it on the street and feels fancy. And also in a funny kind of way because people people don't really see Barbie as, <laughs> as fancy anymore. They, we see it as excessive and... Uh, and fancy, yeah, and yeah, it's sort of more embraced by of the LGBTQ world. Let me ask a more boiled down question then on that. Mm. Do girls growing up in China play with dolls or even stuffed animals 
I'm thinking back. I don't ever remember seeing that be a part of the culture in China. So I guess the basic question is, do girls in China mm. when growing up play with dolls? I think these days they do, but I, I, maybe it'll be better if I start with my own experience. I grew up in the 90s. Um, I grew up playing with fake, fake Legos and maybe fake Barbies. Maybe they were just not even seen as Barbies. It's just like a doll and some, mm -hmm. yeah, some Lego toys. Actually, I didn't get my first stuff, like real Disney stuffed animals until middle school or high school, which is like in early 2000s. Uh, but I think after early 2000s, since there were a lot of like IP rights um, being protected, hopefully, and people are like the millennial parents are more aware of this sort of thing. So they will tend to get uh, the toys from the real, real deal. It almost gets me going down a path of thinking about what kind of toys do children typically have when growing up with China? And it's not that I even need the answer to mm. it. It's just I think, you know, North America consumes like nobody else. Um, and although China is catching mm. up quickly, the amount of toys kids have in North America is great. Like this is where the toy box and the toy closet and it's all referenced back to to the amount of toys I just don't know that, again, I haven't seen a lot of excessive toys in the households that have children. Right. Yeah, I have a thought there. I think the favorite toy of uh, Chinese children in this era is just their phone, their parents' phone. And a lot of times when I go out for family dinners, I would see the kids of my relatives just be on their phone, like maybe watching a cartoon without earplugs, which is very annoying. But they, yeah, maybe their their ears are too small for earplugs. Or they actually would go on Douyin, which is China, uh, sister app of TikTok, and they would like scroll down these content videos. And sometimes, like I remember this one relative would complain that so, like sometimes like the kid would just click or just say that they want certain toy that was being promoted on Douyin. So yeah, I can also see China going down this. Um, I think the Chinese kids will go down this rabbit hole without even realizing they're sucked into the consumer culture because they're on their phone all the time uh, since a very young age. Or maybe iPad, watching cartoons. The great thing about great toys is that they promote imagination and mm -hmm. they creativity and play. Uh, you have to fully come up with the entire environment, the dialogue, the situation. Um, and, you know, I've seen my kids, especially my daughter, just hours and hours of just absorbed in her own world and her own fantasy that she has completely created. Uh, and that's my favorite thing about toys because I, I love what it does for the way their brains grow. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at wpic.co, and be sure to rate 
comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.